The Census Bureau is still assessing what it learned from a national count conducted during a pandemic, but it's also looking ahead to how it can best operate as a statistical agency, perhaps the premier statistical agency 25 years into the 21st century. For an update, we turn to Census Director Robert Santos. Mr. Santos, good to have you back. Uh, Good morning. It's always great to be with you, Tom. And you have written quite an extensive blog here. It looks like you've thought about this a lot, a lot of bullet points in there. And I guess let's start with the first point that I caught, if you don't mind, and the uh, 2020 derived products still to come out in 2023. Uh, There's a lot of work to be done there, too, you are telling the Bureau. That is absolutely correct. The pandemic led to delays in the census products. We focused much of our resources to get out the absolutely constitutionally required counts for apportionment. Those are 50 numbers. We got those out as quickly as we could, followed by the redistricting files. And since then, we've been working to develop the remainder of the releases, the first of which will be coming in May of 2023, called the Demographic and Housing Characteristics Files. And that has the basic demographic population counts, you know, for sex, age, race, ethnicity, down to small geographic levels, followed by in August, there will be a release of the detailed demographic housing characteristics file A. And all it means is that they were split up. The detailed tables were split up into three products, uh, the first of which will be released in August. And that contains a very highly detailed and granular geography and race ethnicity types of categories. So there'll be over 370 separate race ethnicity categories on that file, including over 1,200 individual American Indian and Alaska Native village tribes. So it will be really nicely, highly detailed, very rich data that's coming out in August, as well as a standard product that we usually put out, which is the congressional district profiles for their governance. That's always a hit with Congress. (laughs) It strikes me that if the nation was a pointillist painting, the big 2020 count of how many, 360 million, et cetera, is looking at it from a block away. But the products Mm -hmm. coming out next, we can walk right up to it with a magnifying glass and see what's really going on at a very localized level. I think something just came out the other day that town I live in in Maryland is like one of the top 10 diverse places. Who knew? I guess you could walk around and see it. But now we have that evidence. Fair way to characterize these uh, forthcoming products? Yes, they're much more pixelated so that you could do deep dives into them. You have to watch out. You you can't go too low because you might end up with a little bit of noisy data. But it's really nicely rich data that will tell us who we are as a nation. Paint a very bright, colorful portrait of the diversity that we are. And this is really useful for policymakers, but also for people in business that really want to tailor what they do to whom they expect to serve. The uses of data that is that detailed are only limited by one's creativity and imagination. There are many applications, both in the business sector, in the government sector, as well as for local communities, you know, be they you know, school wards or community economic development groups, chambers of commerce and businesses love these data. 
there's going to be a lot of utility in that. We're speaking with the U.S. Census Bureau Director Robert Santos, and you have done some re-engineering now for 2030 already. I guess to the public, it seems like, wow, that's really soon. But to census, each 10 years is almost like a heartbeat away. Actually, that is correct. And we throw in some extra heartbeats as well. We actually started on the 2030 census in the 2018-2019 part of the decade. So we are now going full steam ahead. There is much to be planned. And what's interesting is that we are approaching this in a couple of different ways. One of which is that the Census Bureau itself is in the process of transforming itself into a 21st century federal statistical agency enterprise, where we're doing a paradigm shift from being a transactional data collection operation where we have surveys, we have censuses, we knock on doors, we solicit individual entities and ask them to provide information to one that leverages existing data, administrative data from, you know, IRS records. We have MOUs, Memoranda of Understanding, to share data with IRS, with the Social Security Administration, with Medicare, with Medicaid, and so forth. These data are very rich and can provide a lot of information, often information that is asked in the decennial census or in a survey, but folks fail to include it. Either they're in a rush and they skip over or they don't know the answer. So we're finding and leveraging those data to create this different paradigm where we start with all the information from different sources that we compile together And then we identify gaps and then fill in those gaps through targeted solicitation. We're looking as an enterprise for this combination of blended administrative data and solicited data to actually be much more powerful and useful, have higher utility for social problems and governance than the individual data programs that generate them. And so we're really excited about that. It does have implications to the 2030 census because as we're moving forward and testing and such, we're adopting as much as possible uh, because we're in the midst of transformation. We're adopting as much as possible the ability to leverage this different enterprise, this different approach so that we can create a more efficient and more highly accurate decennial process that capitalizes on information we have and then looks to fill in for basically hard to reach populations and historically undercounted folks. What about information sharing, say, at the state level, where there might be much more detailed records about, say, businesses, locations and ownership and that kind of thing as the states try to grapple with this issue themselves? What an amazing commentary. You read our minds. Uh, We are looking to supplement the federal national data that we have available with whatever additional sources of information we can find. And we have for a long time already been soliciting and working with states to see if we can identify and leverage their administrative data sources from things like you know motor vehicle registration, voter registration, things of that sort. And we have had limited success 
we respect the sovereignty of each state and recognize that not everyone is going to want to join the bandwagon to create a larger data product that benefits society just because you know states are states and they have their own vision of what they want to do with their data. We are accumulating state by state as much information as we can. If we have it and it's determined to be useful, we will use it. <laughs> it does require a bit of processing because states are free to, and they should, design their data systems and their collections according to what meets their needs for their population. And that does not always necessarily sync with the way that we need it or use it. And so there's this processing that, and, and exploration that needs to, to be conducted before we can make it fully useful. And what about commercial data sources? A lot of agencies are using that for purposes of identity verification in cybersecurity and this kind of thing. But there's also a lot of information, again, economic, population, mm-hmm. demographic, that is in those commercial databases. Is that suitable and is it proper for census to look at those? The answer is yes and yes. <laughs> the opportunity to leverage information does not lie solely with other federal agencies or departments and the states. It also includes the private sector. We are exploring and actually use for 2020 some commercial data to help inform us as to things like which addresses had occupied housing units and things of that sort. So there have been some uses of it already. We're looking to expand that but careful to make sure that we don't overly rely on the data because you're only one CEO or board decision away from suddenly not having it. (laughs) So uh, we tread carefully, but we are deliberate and we want to seize whatever opportunities we have out there. It strikes me that a lot of these sources that augment what Census Bureau gathers itself even if it doesn't change numbers necessarily, provides a really good error-checking mechanism that makes you more Uh, accurate. Yes, it does, although you always have to question which one is the more accurate. (laughs) Well, you're the statistician, not me. So That's right. (laughs) Our bigger approach is that more information is better than less information. And so we're willing to bring it all in and line it all up and match it and see to what extent we can exploit it to create more accurate data and fulfill our mission of providing the nation with quality data on our our population and our economy. And census operates, I think, as we indicated at the beginning, as part of a population of statistical agencies in the government. There's a whole community. But I always think of census as kind of the big one in the room there. But what is going on in the federal statistical community on some of these data sources and data usage gambits that are shareable, and how is that all changing? Uh, Well, we do have an interagency committee on statistical policy that is composed of uh, not only the uh, 13 federal uh, statistical agencies, but also because of the Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, uh, representatives, uh, statistical officers from all the other departments. And we coordinate and share information about how we are leveraging our data and working with and under the guidance of the chief statistician of the U.S., Karen Orvis, and her wonderful staff at OMB to make sure that we provide consistently and report data that fulfills the OMB regulations and standards 
as to things like uh, race and ethnicity reporting and, and such. And you can't have a discussion about statistics or gathering or data nowadays without talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning. And you have stated, again, going back to your blog, that you are trying to modernize economic statistics and that AI and ML might have a role here. Maybe just briefly explain what that would be. The notion is that AI and machine learning are tools, and the tools are only as good as where you apply them appropriately. So our initial forays, and it's going to expand, our initial forays have been on things like the economic census, which is ongoing. We're collecting data from, you know, 4 million businesses right now. And if you look at the application, the survey online that you go through, there are areas where you have to put in things like, you know, what types of services do you provide? Do you put it in a text or what is the industry that you're in? And as a respondent records text of what their business is all about, a drop-down menu will automatically pop up that takes the text that was written and uses an AI algorithm to subselect the most likely categories that fit into whatever text that was. And so it eases the burden of having to scroll and scroll and scroll through countless. Uh, you know, we, we produce so many things and we have so many industries in our country. So it really cuts down that burden so that they can quickly and easily identify the category for that particular question that's being asked. And if you think about it, that does two things. One is it eases the burden, and so the individual is more likely to continue until completion. And the second is it creates more accurate data because it basically does what previously had been a laborious effort to have human eyes among the millions of text responses and then having to go through the mental cognitive challenge of taking that and trying to identify what code it belongs to. All right. And then all of these things together, when you talk about the data-centric operation, use of ML and AI and everything else, there must be a pretty strong technology component to support this new approach. And just maybe give us a quick survey of what's going on on the IT front there to enable all of this. Certainly, we are, as I mentioned, as an enterprise, the Census Bureau is transforming into a 21st century data-centric type of single enterprise operation. And that requires that we take our platforms that historically have been stovepiped into individual data collection systems, like the Decennial had their own system for collecting data. The current population study had their own. The you know crime victimization survey had their own, et cetera, et cetera. And creating a single platform where it doesn't matter which survey you're doing, you can use the common platform to not only create all the questions in whatever survey that are being done, but also manage the sample, however that's defined. And it doesn't matter whether it's an economic study, annual business study, or a national health interview study of persons. It'll all be one common platform. Then the data from that platform, because it's now a single enterprise platform gets ingested into a large data lake where all the data exist and can be linked together 
to create more powerful databases to maybe answer questions that couldn't otherwise be answered, as well as to provide the historical data products that are done. And then there's the data dissemination aspect where we're creating a single enterprise type of operation where we can easily disseminate data and have people access that very easily. And it leads to better, more efficient data products, including data visualizations and things of that sort, really facilitates that whole operation. And just a final question with all of these activities going on and the establishment of memoranda of understanding and so on, are people at the Bureau, what's the percentage of people teleworking, remote, and coming back into the Bureau these days? These days, we are in a unique situation. The Census Bureau actually has upwards of 13,000 plus individuals who work with us across a large Suitland-based headquarter facilities, as well as six regional offices and a national processing center and then a contact center, basically a telephone center in Tucson. So what the Suitland operation, which has the bulk of our full-time staff, is actually in a high flexible telework situation out of necessity. We are in the process of taking our 900,000 square feet and remodeling it. The contractors are in place. Work has begun, and that will take a little bit of while. So in the near future, uh, there will be a continued very flexible telework in the regional offices. Naturally, there'll be a combination of in-office work as well as some liberal telework type of thing. So we're in a really good place. I think right now as a holding area, we develop the new renovated space, at which time we'll have a full telework policy. So you're remodeling for the purpose of supporting telework better. In fact, one of the things, if you look backwards, the pandemic required, and the pandemic and the remodeling for the last two plus years uh, required that all of the headquarters staff be in maximum flexible telework because we had very limited space in the headquarters. That's continued. So we've had a long experience with it now, and we found that we can, in fact, continue work and thrive. So we're not afraid of having to be in that situation. And in fact, there are people in family situations who, who embrace that and find that those types of situations work. So we're looking to the future to see how we can take our revised new facility and match the benefits of having people come together and meet each other and have that in-person synergy that can happen only in person mixed with uh, some flexible telework as well. Yeah, so no traditional cubicle farm for all 10,000 people. Well, uh, yes and no. No in that there will be uh, there will be a telework situation, but yes in the sense that we are doing a hoteling type of right. operation where we take space essentially be large cubicles as well as offices and then folks will be able to say i'm going to be here i take this space for these days and uh, i'll be working at home otherwise robert santos is director of the u.s census bureau thanks so much for thorough coverage here 
Oh, I'm absolutely delighted. I am at your service, sir. And I want to give a shout out to the federal community as public servants. We all rock. We all right. rock. Indeed you do. We'll post this interview plus a link to his blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped 
influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State. It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was, but my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness 
toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, I the way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know, <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling. It, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.